0: So, yeah, now it's cleanup on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be cleanup on aisle 45. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 37 of Cleanup on Aisle 45. It is Wednesday, September 29th, and Andrew Torres is on vacation. So, I am joined today by Morgan Stringer. Hi, Morgan. Hi, thanks for having me again. Yes, thank you for subbing. I love when you come on the show. Uh, It's going to be an interesting uh, show today. We have a lot to cover. Uh, But first, I wanted to thank our new patrons. And I think there might be some repeats in here, but, you know, some people bear repeating. First of all, we have Empress Me, and then Jimmy Earl Christensen. We have Thrawn, a new live-action Star Wars fan film, is raising funds on Indiegogo and needs your support. Then we have, when will you clean up Alan dershowit <laughs> Which I think we had from last week, but I still love it. Uh, Amanda Burns Art. And Abigail Alvarez. Thank you so much for becoming patrons. For a little as, as a buck an episode, uh, you can become a patron. And you get these episodes ad-free. And, and you can do that by going to patreon.com slash aisle45pod. A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D. And with that... Um, Morgan, how about we uh, we kick off the A block here?
1: All right. So for A block, I wanted to talk about the January sixth uh, commission news, um, which is being headed up by a fellow Democrat and Mississippian, Benny mm-hmm. Thompson. Um, specifically the subpoenas. So we have some familiar characters here. We've got um, subpoenas been issued for Mark Meadows, former chief of staff, Dan Scavino Jr., former deputy chief of staff, Stephen K. Bannon, Trump's former advisor, not so sure about the former part, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> and Kash Patel, the former Pentagon chief of staff. Ah,
0: Cash Patel, Devin Nunes' aide, Cash Patel went to Ukraine probably under federal criminal investigation. Cash Patel, it's an interesting one. He's one of the people who got moved around about a week and a half after the election. He was on the National Security Council staff but then was named as Pentagon Chief of Staff by Acting Defense Secretary Chris Miller, who was appointed right after Trump fired Defense Secretary Mark Esper. There was a lot of moving parts shortly after he lost, I want to say, the election.
1: Yeah, there there was so much happening in the aftermath of the election that it's so easy to miss these little tidbits, especially with you know these seemingly familiar characters. You're like, wait, Cash Patel? It sounds familiar, but so like I say, had a little swivel, but it's it's hard sometimes. But Meadows, Scavino, Bannon, and Patel have to turn over documents to the commission by October seventh, which is just in time for Andrew and I's birthday. And yes, we do share a birthday as well. Oh, I didn't know that. I hope that this will be a happy birthday
0: indeed. Uh, I I feel like they're going to defy these subpoenas under some sort of dumbass privilege. But I mean, what kinds of information uh, is the commission looking for here? I mean, I think I know, but let's talk about it.
1: Yes, so I do expect him to defy the subpoenas as well, and, you know, that comes down to the, well, what are you going to do? And hopefully they'll finally decide to do something, but we'll see. So they do want these four to also sit for depositions the following week on these matters, but what's being asked about is information about the run-up to and around January 6th. Bannon reportedly communicated to Trump on December 30th and urged him to focus on January 6th. Uh, He was also at the Willard Hotel on January 5th, where plans were discussed to try and overturn the election where he was quoted as saying all hell is going to break loose tomorrow
0: it sounds like he kind of maybe knew what was going on i mean weren't there some people there in body armor i mean yeah yeah it was a normal time yeah you just you know body armor it's cold out no it's summer okay i mean this is all highly suspicious no wait it was january god the time flies morgan i feel like this just happened like it does it's somewhere in australia (laughs) there we go yeah water backwards out down the drain and also yeah kevlar in the summertime so uh you know i i don't know this is so highly suspicious right especially especially in the context of that quote all hell is going to break loose tomorrow i mean you know and what was meadows doing
1: so your friend and mine dear friend of a show, uh, Mark Meadows, (laughs) was involved in plans to subvert the election results, according to the committee. And that's the committee saying that. In Trump's final weeks, he kept pushing the DOJ to investigate election fraud conspiracies. You know all the ones. I'm not going to repeat them. He also met with organizers of a January 6th rally, including Amy Kremer of Women for America First.
0: Oh yeah 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 women for america first yeah and and you know it looks like Scavino was part of those efforts as well but uh, he was in contact with Trump and others who planned the rallies as well as met with Trump on January 5th right there's been all this you know talk about this meeting at the Willard Hotel the night before the insurrection to discuss how to persuade members of congress
1: not to certify the election, which it seems like that's part of the plan, right? Yes. And Scavino even promoted the January 6th, um, I'll say, event on Twitter, telling people to, quote, be a part of history. He also tweeted messages from the White House on the date of the insurrection. Oh, yeah. And, and you know,
0: I wonder what kind of historical moment they were hoping that could be, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> mm. uh, especially given the discussions of all hell breaking loose. And then, of course, you know what this reminds me of, Morgan, is that that call to to Rosen. I think it was Rosen with the Donahue notes where where he was like, just just say the election is corrupt and leave the rest to me and my Republican colleagues in Congress. Right. This all is coming yes. together, you know. Yeah, it seems a narrative's forming. Yeah, the narrative that we suspected all along, right?
1: Yeah, so then, so the last person is Patel, which people may be saying, you know, well, what's Patel in the mix for? So Patel evidently communicated with senior Pentagon officials before and during the insurrection regarding security. He was also in communication with Meadows on that day. So that'll be, if they do respond to the subpoenas, that would be an interesting um, opportunity to see if their stories match up.
0: Yeah. And that's kind of the crux of this for me is who at the Pentagon put the kibosh on sending out the National Guard, delaying it for so long when when they were out there in within seconds when it was Black Lives Matter protesters. So it's going to be really interesting. And the committee's also investigating a report that Trump tried to install Patel as deputy director of the CIA in early December. <laughs> but Gina, Gina Haspel the, the director at the time threatened to resign. She's like, I'm out if you bring Cash Patel in this place.
1: Yeah, I'm sure Trump wanted Cash Patel to be deputy director of the CIA after he lost the election for very cool and very normal reasons. But <laughs> I mean, who's to say? <laughs> I
0: know. I'm like, I'm sitting here thinking I was just talking to a friend earlier today. I'm like, he's got our national security secrets. I bet he's selling them, you know, like it's just what? And we had that weird internet thing going on with the Pentagon. It was all it was all very fishy. But it looks like the January sixth committee is moving fast, and it looks like they're going big. I mean, these are big names in the Trump administration. They want answers immediately. Uh, and that's a quick turnaround. And they want documents and and they want them to undergo, you know, depositions. And I'm thinking, you know they're they're going big early, but this also might be because they know that they're going to be fought in court. <laughs> So let's get the subpoenas in now and start that battle sooner, you know, rather than later. Right.
1: Exactly. And the committee is also seeking testimony for capital defendants who pled guilty as well. And it's unclear about, you know, again, if they're going to cooperate with that. But that is leverage that can be used for a more lenient Senate. Say, if I have a client that has pled guilty and then they get subpoenaed by Congress related to that, then I can try and use that cooperation, you know, to a certain extent as a mitigating factor. Another attorney has said his client will refuse, but that client has not even been asked by the committee, which really made me laugh. I'm like, girl, no one asked you. <laughs> like, yeah. You're it's fine.
0: Like, like I wanna I wanna write to Benny Thompson and just being like, No, I will not be deposed for your
1: committee. He's like, Who uh, are you? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh. so yeah. My analysis is basically this. It's kind of like you indicated earlier. So we have two lanes. We have sort of this more legalese way of overturning the election. So these are the actions that they're trying to get certain Congress people to take. This is Trump's lawyers put... This is pushing the conspiracies, these bonkers lawsuits, the Eastman memo, which we will get into. And then we have in the other lane, the insurrection, which is the people breaking into the Capitol. And for sure, some of them came in there with a plan and it was not going to lead to, you know, oh, I just want to give everyone a hug. So we do need to investigate, you know, both of those lanes, but then also see where they intersect and where they overlap.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I've talked to Glenn Kirshner about this a lot, that those two lanes cannot be divorced from one another in in, in an investigation. They simply can't. Right. Which is why. We personally do not believe that the Department of Justice is not investigating the stuff like the Eastman six point memo, you know, coups for dummies and and the the phone call to Rosen and the Jeffrey Clark thing trying to recruit Clark to send letters out to states saying we found some corrupt shit in your elections and you need to have these, uh, you know, these electors on standby uh, to, to vote for Trump. It's just, you, I, I don't see, and, and Glenn Kirshner also agrees with me, or, uh, or I agree with him, I, I don't know, chicken and the egg, but we agree with each other that there's no way Merrick Garland can be investigating the boots on the ground insurrection and not investigating the people who created it. You know, it just doesn't seem feasible.
1: Yeah, it seems like a lot of those, uh, you know, I'm imagining a board with, you know, the red string going along and I'm imagining I'm having quite a few cross sections, um, like a lot of overlap keeps the same string will keep going back and forth. You know, you know what I'm (laughs)
0: saying? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's literally a murder board. Um, But I'm hoping we get answers to all of this soon. And I feel, you know, I feel like the Department of Justice already has all this evidence and they're looking into it, I think, criminally. Uh, and now they're handing it over to Congress. Biden, the institutionalist, is saying, I'm not going to call executive privilege on this. Have it. Have it. The National Archives have it all, uh, which is odd for, for a president to say, because that puts him in peril if anyone wants to come after any of his documents after the fact, you know, but he's willing to, to be like, dude, transparency, man, even I you know. Uh, no malarkey you know
1: (laughs) no malarkey yeah that's that's kind of a thing yeah that's a motto here
0: (laughs) come on man that's come on (laughs) man (laughs) come on man uh but yeah i'm hoping we get answers to soon we'll keep following these subpoenas for sure uh but we do have to take a quick break before we get to the B block we're going to talk about some of the fallout from the very restrictive abortion law sb8 in texas everybody stay with us
1: i'm greg oliar Four years ago, I stopped writing novels to report on the crimes of Donald Trump and his associates. In 2018, I wrote a best selling book about it, Dirty Rubles. In 2019, I launched Prevail, a bi weekly column about Trump and Putin. President Putin was extremely strong and powerful. Spies. Active measures. in the language of the KGB. Mobsters. Uh, Donald Trump obviously does a lot of construction. And so many traitors! Over the last two years that I've been here, I've been accused of all different types of things, and uh, all of those things that have turned out to be false. Alternative facts.
0: I drank beer with my friends. Almost everyone did.
1: Sometimes I had too many beers. Sometimes others did. I liked beer. Trump may be gone, but the damage he wrought will take years to fully understand. The best is yet to come! Join me and a revolving crew of contributors and guests as we try to make sense of it all. This is Prevail.
0: All right. Welcome back. Uh, Again, I'm with Morgan Stringer today. Andrew is on vacation. So over the last couple of weeks, Andrew and I have been covering the SB8 abortion ban at six weeks in Texas that deputizes citizens as vigilantes. And there have been a few amicus briefs filed on both sides, uh, including in support of the Department of Justice lawsuit that aims to dismantle the law for violating... M- uh, multiple things not limited to the Supremacy Clause, 14th Amendment, and federal regulation of interstate commerce. Right?
1: Yeah. And that, that is absolutely right. In October 1st, the court is going to hear a separate filing from the main justice lawsuit to enjoin or block the law while their suit is litigated. But speaking of interstate commerce, everyone's favorite thing, um, Oklahoma <laughs> only has four abortion clinics, and one of them told the New York Times that two-thirds of its patients are from Texas. That's just an
0: astonishing number. And the effects of this new law have been profound, right? Because Texans with unwanted pregnancies have been forced to make decisions very quickly. Some have opted to travel long distances for abortions. Uh, as clinics in surrounding states fill up, though, appointments are being scheduled for later dates, making the procedures more costly, right? Uh, you know, I was reading the numbers like at, at, at eight weeks, it's $650, but you know, at, at 15 weeks, it, c- it can be like 1500 $2,000 to get a procedure. Uh, Other women are, are being forced to carry their pregnancies to term.
1: And it's not just Oklahoma. About half the patients at Hope Medical Group for Women in Shreveport, Louisiana, are now from Texas, up from about a fifth before the law was um, passed. At Little Rock Family Planning Services in Arkansas, Texas patients make up 19% of the caseload now, compared with less than 2% in August. But Oklahoma does not require two trips to a clinic to get an abortion in most cases, so it has been the more common choice. Yeah, and that
0: just sort of shines a light on how difficult it is to get an abortion anywhere in a, in a Republican a Republican state because you know like like you just said some of these states require two visits you know
1: yes and, same in and, Mississippi yeah Mississippi mm-hmm. does and there is one abortion clinic
0: yeah geez and and we have that law that uh, case coming up in the Supreme Court which they've agreed to hear
1: well the Attorney General which you know I don't like to speak poorly a fellow alumni but um. <laughs> please, please you know, go ahead <laughs> if we had uh yeah please proceed um but i will say this um she is not the uh smartest lawyer which you know usually i would be like oh yeah she's she's not the smartest attorney but it seems like the supreme court you know is it's kind of stacked it's you know we'll see but yeah. um being the smartest lawyer may not matter or being the dumbest lawyer in her case
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and, and and let's talk about for a minute. Who's impacted the most by by SB8? And as states pass more abortion restrictions, it's increasingly, it's poor women who must grapple with the effects. Half of American women who get an abortion in 2014 lived in poverty. Half. Double the share from 1994, when about a quarter of the women who had abortions were low income. Theories for why include demographic changes, increased funding for abortions for low income women, and higher income women having more access to highly effective contraception.
1: And the situation in Texas may be temporary. As you said, A.G., there's a hearing on October 1st that will give the law's opponents another chance to convince a judge to suspend it. But other restrictions are looming. In Oklahoma, there are five, including a law that requires abortion providers to be board-certified obstetricians. If it takes effect as scheduled on November 1st, four of the eight doctors licensed to work at Trust Women could no longer do so.
0: And with that additional caseload from from Texas that's going to be very difficult because, you know, we I, they have been trying to hire to keep up with demand and then to have half of your providers not be able to to perform the procedure after November 1st would be devastating.
1: Yeah. And it's that stigma as well. It's, you know, the, you know, it's hard to find, you know, people who are board certified obstetricians that are, you know, willing to do that kind of work. And also to do an abortion does not require that under, you know, medical standards. But yeah, it's bonkers.
0: Yeah. They don't care about science. Uh, All right. Uh, We have uh, more news and comings and goings to get to. uh, And uh, it's going to be fun. So stay with us.
1: For comings and goings, I wanted to talk about the Eastman memo that I'm sure some listeners saw floating around online, particularly on Twitter.
0: Yeah, yeah, this is the insurrection for dummies, right? This is the six-point plan written by uh, GOP operative lawyer John Eastman, a so-called prestigious Republican constitutional scholar. Those things don't belong in the same (laughs) section. (laughs) But he's the lawyer that put this thing together for Trump.
1: Yeah, exactly. And agreed on that. I'm always like heavy quotes in italics. But basically, (laughs) so Eastman's plan is broken into a very helpful six step memo. And there's another memo that goes a little bit deeper into it. I say that, but it's like four pages and also terribly written. But Regardless of that, it's still scary. So here's how it goes. So Pence, so this is on January 6th, and this goes back to, you know, the certification of the election by Mike Pence. Um, Pence starts opening and counting the ballots, starting alphabetically with Alabama. Pence gets to Arizona and then announces a multiple slate of electors and so says, I will defer decision on that until we finish with the other so-called legitimate states. (sighs) Eastman notes that this would be the first break with procedure.
0: Jesus Christ! And this is after, right? Jeffrey Clark penned those letters and sent it. You know, we saw one to Georgia, but apparently to multiple states, saying, "Hey, we found corruption shit in your letter. Get us a get an, a put together an alternate a slate of electors, right?" Yes. and and that that goes together with this. It links with this, and and the states they name are, are very evident. Right. They're all states where Republicans push the big lie in this in this six point memo. We've seen in total Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Nevada, Michigan, and New Mexico.
1: Yes. And again, coincidence. So um, again, going into that overlap there of pushing these conspiracies to incite people, but then also to support this more like, you know, on the ground like legalese sort of narrative. So then the plan would be that Pence would say, oops, looks like there's no valid electors from both states because of the disputes and regarding the election fraud. So then he would just count the so-called valid electors, meaning there would be 454. And that would mean 232 votes for Trump and 222 votes for Biden. Pence would then gavel in, Pen, gavel in not Pence, but Trump as reelected. If he gaveled himself in, that would be truly astonishing. But um, no, Pence would then gavel in Trump as reelected.
0: Yeah, and I also want to talk about first of all the audacity of Eastman to say in his memo uh, in how he thinks the Democrats would respond to overturn the democracy, overturn the throw, overthrow the government. Right? How how would Democrats respond to a coup? Well, howls, of course, from the Democrats who now claim contrary to Tribe's prior position that 270 is required. So Eastman seems to think Lawrence Tribe supports this position. <laughs>
1: he's like leave me out of this (laughs)
0: excuse me that is just simply not so i'll quote lawrence tribe's reaction quote this eastman memo pretends to be based on my analysis (laughs) but in fact takes snippets of my work wholly out of context and spins a totally fake web of law in quotes that no halfway decent lawyer would take seriously
1: (laughs) and also Um, even if lawrence tribe did say all that cool none of that is the law (laughs) (laughs) but back to the six point plan to end democracy so in response to these howling democrats yelling and whining because they probably won't let us just steal the election you know here's the back the first backup plan pence would say oh fine then there's no majority. So then under the guise of, oh, well, this is what's going to happen under the 12th Amendment because there's no majority because of the states that I conveniently decided don't matter because <laughs> reasons, the matter would then go to the House where the votes will be taken by the states and representatives from each state will have one vote. And as Eastman notes, Republicans control 26 state delegations. So that means Trump would be gabbled in by Pence as reelected.
0: Yeah, and I remember talking about this process, like when we were all kind of scared to death about Trump not leaving office. What could he possibly do? And and we we talked about if nobody reaches two seventy, we talked about that eventuality in case it came down to that, right? Uh, Without throwing states out because reasons. Just you know, sometimes in very rare instances, no one reaches two seventy. What happens? Well, the Republican would probably win because of those twenty six electors in the House. Uh, Wait, but though. One thing, though, the 12th Amendment doesn't say that the vice president can just throw those states out. He's free to just ignore whatever electors for for reason, like you said, and then say, oh, well, no majority of the House delegations get to decide, right? That's exactly what, <laughs> what they wanted to happen here.
1: It sure doesn't, Allison, but let's get it. We got two more points to get through. So, oh, okay. you know, there's a backup backup plan. So um, Eastman says, assuming the Electoral Count Act process is followed, which I love that, assuming that they follow the law, uh, uh, (laughs) and upon getting the objections to Arizona, the two houses would break into separate chambers. So this is again the, the other backup plan. And Eastman says we we should not allow the Electoral Count Act, you know, again the law, to constrain the debate because then that would mean he says you could you could argue about it and say that oh well if we follow the rules of the actual law then that's a prior legislature determining rules of a present one.
0: Oh, okay. So so in other words, someone would say well current rules are the filibuster controls because those are the current rules and we just disregard what the actual law says
1: yes another reason why the filibuster sucks and needs to go <laughs> and there are even suggestions for that someone um there's some helpful hints here the memo suggests ted cruz rand paul etc <laughs> that someone to say the filibuster.
0: (laughs) Of course it does. Uh, And then the memo even says that it will create a deadlock that will give state legislatures more time to weigh informally to support this so-called alternate slate of electors. Uh, So what is the final part of this plan to destroy democracy?
1: So this is actually one of the scariest parts. Eastman is very adamant in this. And the the longer memo is actually where he War games this out. And that is his language, not mine, by the way. He calls it <laughs> war games because um, he's a loser. So Eastman says the main thing here is Pence should do all of this, all these plans, without asking for permission, either from a vote of the joint session or from the court, and that that is the key to all of these plans. So Eastman says, let the other side challenge the actions in court, where Tribe and others would press a lawsuit, but then would have their past position that these are non-justiciable political questions, and then that would be thrown back at them, and then the suit would get dismissed. Which you said, well, this is again, nonsense. But Eastman says at the end, the fact is the Constitution assigns this power to the VP as the ultimate arbiter. We should take all of our actions with that in mind doesn't say that no (laughs) what are you reading
0: (laughs) which is constitution 2.0 yeah so uh, how close were we to this happening
1: well I've got some bad news so it did also come out that Pence actually made calls about what (laughs) he should do and Dan Quayle of all people told Mike Pence yeah man you can't do that So, (laughs) you know, Dan Dan Quayle, Quayle, of all people, may have (laughs) saved our democracy, (laughs) which is dark, very dark. But um, also we did uh, more bad news. So on December 14th, 2020, you know, the Georgia State Capitol met to certify the um, election. But there was a second meeting that was held at the Georgia State Capitol that day in a committee room convened by GOP chair David Schaefer. In that meeting, Schaefer and his fellow Republicans approved a fake slate of second electors to be sent to Washington for Trump on the grounds of the election in Georgia was fraudulent. Trump has said no one worked harder to get him reelected than Schaefer. And how true that is, apparently. Oh, and also, fun fact, Schaefer won his rebid as head of the GOP in Georgia and is still a state senator in Georgia. So that is a lot of fun. How can you...
0: How can you plot to overthrow the government and still work for the government? That's uh, amazing. And, and, you know, while this plan has been decried as just bonkers, it looks like we should still be taking precautions to take this kind of thing seriously. I mean, a lot of the uh, voter suppression laws now in, in these red states are taking the power away from secretaries of state uh, and, 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 and allowing the state legislatures to just appoint their own slate of electors if they want. Andrew and I talked about this, like... Oh, that's not going to happen. I mean, I guess if you wanted to try to pass a law that says the votes of the people don't matter and the state legislature can pick whatever electors they want. But, yeah, good luck with that. And here, you know, and here we are. Yeah, um, here we are. Yeah. And I mean, it it is something we should be taking seriously, especially the apparent thing is, is getting rid of the filibuster, like you said.
1: Yeah. And passing, you know, a new voting rights act, all these kinds of things. There's, you know, it's like, this is a glaring neon sign for yes, while it is silly and ridiculous, it is something to take seriously, especially the fact that there's an attorney who was like, here's my plan to install fascism. You know, that's, that's not great. So, And while we're at it, we should also abolish the Electoral College. I feel like we only talk about that immediately after Democrats lose an election because of, uh, you know, (laughs) the mysterious workings of the Electoral College. Right. I mean, we talked about that after Hillary lost. We talked about that after, you know, the Bush v. Gore instance. But then it never gets brought up again. Uh And I feel like that gets rid of so much of this nonsense. I mean, I'm sure that that then opens up, you know, probably all kinds of other potential for GOP kind of voter fraud and voter suppression you know, but I mean, something has to give here. The sovereign citizen, I mean, it, is, it reads like sovereign citizen nonsense. I was like, yeah. is he about to yell at me that the fringe on the flag is gold? <laughs> so, yeah, but this can't gain as much of a foothold where we say, well, the person with the most votes wins. Mm. So, you know, that gets rid of a lot of this. Well, Mike Pence could, you know, say, oh, well, you know, let's do all this stuff. Um, but also, Eastman should probably never work, should, I'm sorry, definitely should never work as an attorney ever again. But mm. as I can uh, testify to, the worst people get rewarded in the legal profession all the time.
0: Well, if we've if the Department of Justice is doing what I hope it's doing, these people will be charged with crimes, with seditious conspiracy. This is a plot to overthrow the government clearly and plainly. And all the things link up from Jeffrey Clark's letters to states telling him to appoint alternate slates of electors to the six part, you know, uh, insurrection for dummies written by Eastman. And none of these people. Yeah, I'm I'm 100 percent with you should be licensed to practice law anywhere.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's beyond it, it's embarrassing to my profession, but then also it's just it's it's quite frightening and scary what people with you know licenses to practice law are able to push for and able to do.
0: Yeah, and Sydney Powell just won't shut up. She's about to be disbarred, and she won't stop talking. So
1: basically, uh, could never yeah, be I me. can't
0: I can't wait for a comings and goings uh, because you know we didn't really do any like a comings and goings this week because uh, we wanted to talk about. Um, we wanted to talk about this Eastman memo, but I can't wait for the, for the goings where we actually just get to have people disbarred, like Rudy Giuliani, who's still under investigation, even though they've temporarily taken away his law license in New York and then DC followed suit. But they were, you know, they sat down at the table and they're like, all right, we're going to start looking through these thousands of documents to review Rudy Giuliani's status and consider suspension or disbarment. And they get about 15 pages in and they're like, timeout, this is so fucked up we actually have to temporarily take his license away before we even finish our investigation as to whether or not he should be permanently disbarred, right?
1: Which I cannot explain enough how they do not usually do that. No. <laughs> they usually no. do. The, they usually just let you practice law until they're like, ma'am, you, you need to turn your bar card in. <laughs> you're, you're, being, you're on one. Um, yeah. Even if you're like stealing your client's money or something like that, they are like, well, we're not, we can't really do nothing about that until we get through this process. Process, but Rudy Giuliani, they said no. Uh, you have got to st- stop. Stop. Do not pass <laughs> to go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. Just turn in your money and go home.
0: Uh, yep, that's that's uh, intense that they did that. Uh, that they st- that they stopped their investigation to t- just temporarily say so you are such a danger to to the public with your law license that we have to stop this. But and we'll finish investigating and probably just bar you. But you know we're gonna in the meantime. Yeah. Uh, and we, yeah, we'll see what happens. And I can't wait until we get to announce uh, announce those kinds of, of goings. Um, I'm looking forward to it. But I appreciate you being with me today. This was fun.
1: All right. Thank you. I, w- I wish we were talking about things that are less scary, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I
0: know. I know. Uh, it is, it does get pretty rough, but, uh, thank you again for filling in for Andrew. Um, and you know, everybody, if you want to become a patron and support the show, we really appreciate it. You can do it at patreon.com i45pod. Do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here today, Morgan?
1: No final thoughts. Just hoping again, like you said, that, you know, (laughs) karma comes, karma comes around in whatever form that may be is all I can hope for. I'm hoping that I'm not, you know, watching a documentary in 20 years about all everything that finally is being revealed. And I'm like, oh, that's why we don't have a democracy anymore. But yeah. yeah, um, And I guess I have nothing to plug. You can just catch me sometimes on opening arguments where I do entertainment and pop law segments. And Mm -hmm. also you can follow me on Twitter at Mostring. That's M-O-S-T-R-I-N-G is my handle.
0: Awesome. Thank you very much. And everybody, until next week, uh, I've been Allison Gill. Thanks again, Morgan Stringer. And we'll see you on Clean Up on Aisle 45.